You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, so the Lord's Supper, well, doing something wrong here. I guess I'll have to do it this way. I'm not sure. Oh, good, okay. We looked at uh, sections one, one and two, I believe. Um, <laughs> I think I got the right one, and we'll work our way through this. Section three, this is what it says. The Lord Jesus has, in this ordinance, appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray, and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use. So we're talking here of the actual administration of the supper. And essential to this sacrament are the sacramental elements, the bread and the cup, and the actions, very important, the ones that are recorded in the New Testament. As a common staple of life, bread symbolizes spiritual food that's given to nourish the soul. So this is one of the things that it signifies to us. It represents the body of Christ, obviously. But because of what Christ has done, he is spiritual food for our souls. We feed upon Christ, spiritually, not cannibalistically. We use the common bread of daily life and not the unleavened bread of Passover because we're not in haste, we are at rest in Christ. So this is the idea, it's the common staple of life. All around the world, bread is used to nourish the body. The cup contains the fruit of the vine, in the words of institution, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus who died for our sins. So we have the bread and the cup And both of them are to be set apart. They're to be consecrated by the New Testament words of institution, which is why every single Sunday when we have the supper, Pastor Pyland or I, whoever else is there, reads the account from the Gospels or 1 Corinthians 11. Because if we don't, if if the sacrament's not accompanied by the word, it's just a snack. So by the word of God in prayer, something is set apart from common use, things we do every day, to a sacred use. It's a sacrament of the, of the church. It's a sacrament of Christ. So we read the words of institution every time we take the supper, and we set it apart also with prayer. And there should be an explanation given. In our case, we seek to apply uh, the sermon to the supper, not always doing the best job of it, but we try, you know, to link these two things together. Because in the supper, we have a visible picture of the word. It's a visible word. So it's supposed to confirm to our senses what God has promised to us through our ears. Everything created by God is good, says Paul, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy It's set apart by the word of God in prayer. That's how we set apart something for a sacred use. 
The section goes on then to say to take and break the bread. We lift it up, we break it. We take the cup and they communicating also themselves, pastors, give both to the communicants, important, both the bread and the cup, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. And the idea there that there is that this is a corporate activity. This is to be done in the context of the gathered church in worship. As we'll see, there are some errors where they think they can just set apart an element and then save it for Wednesday and take it to somebody who's not in, in uh, worship. That's not the idea. We gather as a family with Christ as the host, and he feeds us. We fellowship with him together. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples. So the elements themselves and the actions are very important in the administration of this sacrament. Any questions on that, Rich? Yeah, I'm going to be that guy. That guy. Oh, here we go. <laughs> when you know, This links back to the Passover. Because that's what Christ and his disciples were observing when Christ instituted this. So how do we get from, we don't need to do unleavened bread anymore, because that's what Christ was doing. Who changed that? And on what authority did he change that? Well, I think it's similar to the reason why the Sabbath was changed from the 7th to the 1st. We went from the <clears throat> remembering the creation to remembering the new creation, right? So the day changed, first day of the week. We went from going out in haste to resting in Christ. So the bread, the daily bread of life, that's how I understand it. There are some who disagree with me, but I, that's how I understand it, that it is the daily bread of life. It's the staple that everybody has. It's not meant to represent haste, which is why they had unleavened bread at the beginning. It's rest in Christ. Yeah. So nowhere do we see in the New Testament where it says, okay, now we're going to change it from the seventh to the first. It's changed because of the resurrection of Christ. And I think it's a similar thing in the New Testament. Pastor Parlin? Just an interesting textual note on that. Um, I can't remember which Gospels, but I think it's uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the same chapter in which um, the Lord's Supper is instituted, also uh, the authors speak of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they use a particular Greek word in the same chapter for unleavened bread um, with regard to the feast there. Um, but when it comes to time for the bread for the Lord's Supper, they use a more generic term. They could have used unleavened, but they intended unleavened to be used. They use a more generic term. Now that could include either or. Fascinating. I think it shows for us this reality that it's, it's a, a flowering open. Fascinating. Thank you. That's very helpful. Well done. Rihanna? I don't know if it's relevant to this section, but um, so in the Catholic Church, they will take the communion to people that are homebound. Right. Here? Yeah. So what we would say is that we would take the church to the people and have a worship service, and they would partake. So <clears throat> we did this, for example, with Jeff Kaler. Um, we had, I think, four or five of us, elders and the pastor, went down there. We had a service. We sat in his living room, and we uh, went through the liturgy. I gave up five-minute little homily, and we had the supper. Because a lot of people do 
these things so independently that I right. think it matters to make a distinction? Well, it has to be the church. And so the bare bones of the church, or the quorum of a church, so to speak, would be the pastor and at least two elders. I think it's two. Two and one? One and one? Right now, we're one and one. One and one. So one elder, one pastor. We typically have more than that. But as long as you have that and you have the preaching of the word, then you can minister the sacrament. Now, some would argue, well, it has to be on Sunday. That's ordinary. But the practice of our presbytery and general assembly, they have worship services, and they will administer the supper even on Saturday and even during the week because general assembly. So I really haven't thought through that myself. I I haven't come up to a decision on whether it has to be Sunday or it can be. But again, the practice of our church courts, they'll do it on other days. Yeah. Okay. Roma sharers, private masses, getting back to... Rihanna's question, or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone is likewise the denial of, as likewise, the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration, and the reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. So one of the things this meal does is sets forth our communion with Christ and our communion with one another as the body of Christ. And so that implies, as I said earlier, a corporate observance. This is not an individual thing. This is an act of the family of God. It's a corporate observance. You know, we're so individualistically minded in our culture. But I think to a Jewish mind, it makes total sense. We do things together. This is a family meal. And it's in the context, as I said, of the preached word and the worshiping community that this is to be observed. So this is one of the reasons why private masses, you go to somebody's house, house by themselves, that's inappropriate. Any private observance is prohibited except in cases, getting back to our conversation, where the word and church are present. So we'll take the worship to the house. This is going to be the church gathered the bare bones, the pastor and the elders, the elders, and there's going to be the preaching of the word. Because again, the sacrament is not meant to do anything but confirm what God reveals in the word. So by itself, it's nothing. It is a snack. In transubstantiation, this is a Roman Catholic belief, The elements are said to become Christ's body and blood, so they're venerated. Of course, if it is Jesus, we worship it, right? If that's Jesus, it's worthy of worship. So they venerate the elements. It's idolatry. It's sinful, and it's completely contrary to the intended design of this sacrament. The sacrament points to Christ. It isn't the body and blood of Christ. We do not call the table an altar. We're not sacrificing Christ. We don't kneel to receive the elements. We don't, in terms of just giving obeisance to the elements themselves. We don't have ministers face away from the people as if somehow this, on this altar we're worshiping Christ. He faces the people because he represents Christ. And he declares the promise of Christ. So these are errors that have taken place over the centuries, and our confession is refuting them. 
Transubstantiation led to withholding the cup from the people to safeguard the blood of Christ. If a drop falls to the ground, well, if that's the blood of Christ, why would you put the blood of Christ on the ground to be trampled underfoot, right? And that's one of the reasons why the priest has to finish off the cup. A lot of alcoholism going on in the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of wine, right? Yet the Lord Jesus gave both the bread and the cup to the disciples, and Paul implies the same. For as often as you all, to use a southern term, it's, it's second person plural. For as often as you all eat this bread and drink the cup, you all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's second person plural. So we are to have both the bread and the cup. We are not to withhold either one of the elements from God's people. Any questions on these? Rihanna? Um, so, so we understand like the Roman Catholic's interpretation of you know, the sacraments and how that's happening. And then, but when you think in like the free angelical world of like what their definitions are of preaching the word and what the church is, they're somewhat being consistent in their interpretation because it would be almost like we all are the church, so now we're gathering here. Uh, we're preaching the word in the sense of, um, so this is like a legitimate situation that's happening. Because we've had where it's like we have these wonderful, well-meaning believers and fellow brothers and sisters who maybe uh, have a study with kids at school, a group session, and then have taken thought about taking communion together. Right. Right. And so I think it's so important for these definitions to, for, for us as parents especially, to define them because I would probably promote to my you know, teenagers that, so they understood that I wouldn't want you to participate right. in the supper in this way. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these well-meaning friends, they understand the invisible church, that we're all God's people. They understand that well, and I appreciate that. I think in our culture, the visible church has been relegated to basic irrelevance. It's a nice thing for us to gather together on Sunday because I get warm feelings about it, right? But that's about it. When in fact it is the bride of Christ and he reigns supreme and he rules his people, governing them by his officers, laws, and censures. This is where we see that God's people bend the knee willingly to our king. Anybody can say, I love Jesus on the corner. But where do we prove, and I hate to use that language, but where where do we give a credible profession of faith? Well, it's in the gathered community, right? So I think you're right. We teach them, look, they're well-meaning. It's well-intentioned. They love the Lord, but this is an an appropriate use of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Rihanna, and then we'll go to Jim. I'm sorry, Sandra. That's Rihanna. I think they're wrong. Um, I'm not sure their mindset. Some people, well, I think the divines actually thought that a wedding could be a part of the worship service. So if you have a wedding as part of the worship service, of course you might have the supper in the service. But I don't think that's what you're talking about. You're talking about a Saturday wedding. It's inappropriate. It's not right. Yeah. Jim? Maybe this is Oh, so you're that guy, right? 
I guess I'm a little puzzled in that in Scripture, Christ gives the bread and says, this is right. my And the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, the Catholic Church still does the transubstantiation. Right. When did somebody decide that that was bad and wrong? And what makes this present one right and them wrong? And that it doesn't necessarily mean I'm eating him, but last week you talked about that um, in a, a way that we take it that we're not present to, that it there's a spiritual mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Why can't people see that as this is really something very sacred. Yes, I know it's a piece of bread. I know it's wine. But it's more than that. And I think that to go all the way to believing that we're cannibals, I'm not I'm confused as to how one can say that's the right way and other people who truly believe and have kept a particular viewpoint that they're, they're wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think sin enters into everything we do. So somebody's, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. We would agree with that. I mean, it can't mean both things. At the, Lord's, at the Passover meal that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, we know that Jesus was there physically in body. And he told his disciples, this is my body, this is my bread. Well, at that point, they were not chewing on him, right? They were eating the bread, not him. Well, if that's the case, it's the same with us. We're not chewing on him. So that's wrong. We know that's got to be wrong. It's contrary to scripture. It's contrary to reason. I mean, that's bread. That's not a body. Um, the idea with Lutherans, I think Luther was trying to do justice to what you're saying. It is the body. Um, in his German stubbornness, he refused to think about it being representative. My wife's a German, so I know all about it. <laughs> I am the stubborn one. Um, so th there's places in Scripture where the being verb is used as representative. You know, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. The seven cows are seven years. So I think, you know, we, we try to understand Scripture and draw our conclusions to the best of our ability, and we come to the, what we think is the truth. And I, I'm convinced that our confession is the right interpretation um, I do think that trans and con is, are both wrong, you know. Why, they're, why they embrace it? Sincerely. I mean, believe me, I know. They go whole hog. They, they believe it. Well, the devil believes a lot of things too, you know, and he's wrong. So, anyway, good question. That's very helpful, I think, for us to consider. Sacramental union, section 5. The outward elements in the sacrament duly set apart but to the uses ordained by Christ have such a relation, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they're sometimes called by the name of the things they represent to wit the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. Nice segue, Jim. Thank you. You are that guy. <laughs> Scripture teaches that Jesus is not in any way physically present in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He's present 
spiritually in the person of the Holy Spirit. The the impersonal and immediate presence of the Spirit. So when we take that supper, he is poised to bless. And it's an act of faith for us to take the bread and drink the cup, believing that he will bless. And again, as I've said and you've agreed, we have no idea how he does that. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and you're believing what the Bible says, and we do this, and he strengthens. We enjoy union and communion with Christ, just as the disciples did when it was instituted. Is it not a participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ, a participation in the body of Christ? There's something more, as Jim alluded to, something more here going on than meets the eye. And the question is, do we believe that? Yes, we do. It's a subtle refutation of transubstantiation and consubstantiation, both of which are errors. Lutherans do not say that the substance of the elements change. They agree that they remain the same. But they do claim that Christ's body and blood are in, with, and under the elements. One might think of a sponge filled with water. The sponge stays the same, but the water's throughout the sponge. That's how they view the supper. So the elements remain the same, but Christ's actual body and blood are throughout the elements somehow. But this is to destroy Christ's human nature, which cannot be ubiquitous. Fancy word. Discuss it at lunch. It means everywhere present. It's a human body. It can't be everywhere. Thousands and thousands of suppers being observed across the world. How can his body, which is a human body, be present? It can't. So it's contradictory to the nature of Christ's humanity. Any, any questions on the Lutheran? Rich? Just, just a point. Christ addressed this when he was dealing with um, his disciples being confused and with, with the, uh, the Pharisees place in the Gospels where he says, what are you going to do if I go away? Hmm. He's making this very point. Very good. If I go away, what are you going to do? Right. There was never any transubstantiation or anything like that in the Passover. Right. Christ himself wasn't turning blood into bread. Right. I'm sorry, you know, he wasn't doing that. Right. He just gave it to him and said, this is what, you know, you drink this, think of the blood that I spilled. So, very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad you said that. Yes, John? I was thinking back to the point of uh, who can give the supper. I think of the Old Testament parallels where there was a lot of importance on who is performing the uh, sacrifices and that they're performed in the right way. And then there's all sorts of things about the right of performing the wrong sacrifices or, or doing them improperly. And so. There is, it seems to be very much tied in with we're wanting to preserve the truth of the gospel. And if anybody anywhere can give the sacraments, then we are pretty much opening it up to, um, we're opening it up to error. Faint fire. Ah, Nadeb and Abihu. Yeah, unauthorized fire, right. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I also think that Christ appoints his officers. As a king, you know, we've, we, we don't think enough about his, his kingship. 
And he, he governs. And this is part of the keys of the kingdom that he entrusts to his church and the representatives of his church. So he, through his officers, lets in, keeps out. You're unrepentant in your sin. You're suspended from the supper. You're one foot out, right, so to speak. It's kind of a bad analogy. but And then finally you're excommunicated. You're out. And not anybody can do that, right? Not, you can't, well, I can't do it by myself. You can't do it by yourself. It's the church that does that. So it's part of his kingship that we honor. That's why it's the minister of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4, we are stewards of the mysteries of God and the keys of the kingdom. Again, transubstantiation, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, is by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant. Don't you love the way the session does, or the confession does this? Repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the sacrament and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yes, of gross idolatries. They say it becomes Christ's literal body and blood. Again, Jim's point. This is my body. It is my blood. The, the consecrated bread and cup, according to Rome, only appear the same. Oh, yeah, we know it looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread. But in substance, it's actually the body and blood of Christ. There's a miracle here. Contrary to scripture, contrary to reason, they're obviously not changed. They say in the consecration, a miracle takes place, but... True miracles are self-authenticating. In other words, you've got to do a whole bunch of mental gymnastics to figure out that's a miracle. When Christ or any of his apostles did a miracle, everybody knew what happened. Legs appeared, dead rises, a lame can walk, mute speak. They can see the miracle. You don't have to explain it to anybody. They know. This miracle is somehow hidden. Why? What purpose does that serve? None. So it's not a miracle. Rome identifies the sign with the thing signified when in fact the elements represent his body and blood, as we've talked earlier. They reserve a part of the consecrated wafers for the sick or other absent people to be used in the future. Next Thursday, I'm going to bring this wafer to you because it's already been set apart by the priest. The miracle's taken place. You're eating the body of Christ. They withhold the cup, as we said earlier, but Christ said, drink of it, all of you. All of you. They worship the elements with bended knee, elevation of the host, and solemn procession. So these are all repugnant to scripture and reason. Any questions on that? Oh, (laughs) I saw you going like this. I thought you were pointing over to somebody else. Okay. Spiritual presence, worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly, by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So worthy receivers are those who profess their faith in Christ. They've been baptized into the triune name and they're members in good standing of the church. That's what worthy means. They're objective. It's very important. They're objective qualifications. They're not based on feelings or emotions or situational factors. If you had a bad week in falling into sin, 
You don't absent yourself. We've already talked about this a little bit. Of course, worthy participation does require the receive, of the receiver sincere faith and heartfelt repentance. We, all, we know that. That's a worthy reception when a believer partakes of the meal. But to be worthy doesn't mean you have to be sinless or have a great week or somehow be the spiritual elite. That's not what it's talking about. The virtues and effects of Christ's sacrifice are conveyed to worthy receivers by the Spirit's power. So this is why, one of the reasons why we go through this, uh, we call it fencing the table every Sunday. Okay, these are the worthy receivers. You've professed your faith. It's an intelligent, credible profession. You've been baptized, initiated into the covenant community. You're a member. And you are continuing to be a communicant member in good standing. Your life is not plagued by scandal or open sin or unrepentance. That's worthy. So you and I do not have the authority to absent ourselves from the supper. You cannot excommunicate or suspend yourself. (laughs) Your job and my job is to repent. Right? That's the answer. Um, and to make things right with those with whom we're at odds. We receive not by mouth, but by faith the benefits obtained. And it takes place wonderfully through the sovereign agency of the Spirit and the instrumentality of saving faith. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in with or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward Senses. So this is more than a memorial, as Jim alluded to. We enjoy real, spiritual, intimate communion with Christ. John? Scott, just to add to the idea of Rome's obsession with the elements, it was taught to me that if the building or wherever they're present were to catch fire, the priest, if he was present, had to run and retrieve those elements to safety. Hmm. Wow, I didn't know that. So if they had a choice between the elements and a baby, what would they do? Take the elements? It's even been reported that some priests have died from doing that. Wow. So, so these errors have very practical effects. Carrie? I was just going to say, it seems that us as very material beings feel that there's this need for this to be a physical Yes. Thing for real, like we underestimate that the presence of the Holy Spirit is as real as it gets, you know. But there's a, a realness to that that yeah. should be able to satisfy that need to have something in our hand. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, the Word of God is enough, that should be enough. But God, knowing our weakness, our frailty, our needs, He's gracious enough to give us His oath, something we can touch, right. So we live in a visual culture, we're told all the time. That's why we got to have pictures and videos and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> He's given us something visual. You can smell it and taste it and touch it. It's a wonderful thing. We don't need anything more. Now, Julia? Um, the, the words in good standing um, that you just defined, is that in the like, book of church order mm-hmm. or I'm not sure if it's quoted, but it is the intent that the, the elders of the church have approved you for membership. And until 
and unless you fall into unrepentant sin and the elders determine you're suspended, yeah, you partake. Uh, Jared? So, I mean, how do you delineate the situation where you ought not individually partake? You have been confronted by the elders. Are you not inviting judgment that you intentionally to deceive yes. the members of the church? Yes, absolutely. That's why you got to repent. You better repent, right? Some of you are sick, and some of you have died. So, <laughs> this is the quandary, right? You come to church, you don't have the authority to absent yourself, so you better get right with the Lord. What a wonderful thing. So, it is serious in that regard. It's very serious. Just symbolic. This is, there are real consequences for abusing Yes, some of the Corinthians had died. So people say, oh, the Old Testament God's pretty strict. You know, the New Testament God's just lovey-dovey. They died. So, Laura? How is it determined when we stand and when we sit? You mean in worship? Yes. Uh, I think it's the direction of the session have determined what's, and I know some churches stand at the reading of the word, and, you know, we stand and sit at various times. Um, yeah, the session just determined when we do that. It's a preference thing. <laughs> but it's a good question, yeah. Because again, I know down at Faith, our mother church, they used to stand for the reading of the word. And many churches do that. And I have no problem with that. We just haven't done it. Um, quite frankly, it was a practical reason. When we first started the church, we would read a chapter of the Old Testament and a large part of the new, we thought, well, some of the older folks, it's a long time to stand, right? So we didn't, didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, unworthy participation, although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, yet they receive not the thing signified thereby. But by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. There you go, Jared. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they're unfit to enjoy communion with him, so they are, are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or to be admitted thereunto. This is not talking about a believer who's had a rough week with sin, who's repentant and coming to the supper. You need to come. This is talking about unbelievers, hypocrites, wicked people. There is no efficacy in the sacrament for unbelievers. There's no grace for those who have no grace. The unbeliever may receive the elements with his mouth, but he fails to receive grace in his soul. It's, it's great sin. He merits God's judgment. It's a means of further hardening, hardening his heart and binding, blinding his mind to spiritual things. No one t- t- takes the supper without something happening. That's important to know. Something happens to everybody every supper, whether it's positive or negative. Unworthy participation increases his guilt, aggravates his condemnation. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. One of the reasons why we don't believe in pedo communion because there is this conscious, active element to the supper. That's serious. What does discerning the body mean? 
You understand that those elements represent the body of Christ, and you understand that this gathered people is the body of Christ, both. The body of Christ gathered, the body of Christ displayed. If you don't discern that, if you just think you're showing up to like the Elks Club and having a snack, something's wrong. There's a problem. Uh, Louise? Right. And I know you could say, in a sense, the Lord was judging me, but is there also some mercy for me? Absolutely. The Lord holds us accountable for the knowledge we have, the light we have. And you were a child, and you didn't know. He's merciful. Absolutely. Um, but those who brought you into that situation, they're accountable. You know, I I do want to. Oh, Rihanna. Uh, really quick, maybe it's not. But the um, as far as elders and holding keys to things and the sacraments being part of your responsibility. Mm-hmm. So you have like baptism seems easy to manage because you're like meeting, declare, making sure they have a profession of faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then people come into our body here and participate within the supper. Um, and it seems like there's some limitation in terms of your ability to control who is taking and who isn't, if they're worthy or unworthy. Um, I guess there would be some limitation in terms of how big of a church we could become, because how could the elders even right. manage that? So how, where do you go in your mind in terms of, as elders, your responsibility towards communion versus baptism and those things? I think I understand the question. So at the, at the supper, there are different churches do it differently. Some exercise extreme control. Like you have to meet with them before the service if you want to partake, if they don't know you. Others don't do anything. Anybody can take it. So we're kind of in the middle. We, we declare at the table what is worthy participation and leave it up to the conscience of the one receiving it. Unless we know that somebody is openly scandalous and the elders decide, okay, you know, we've got Adolf Hitler sitting in the pew. I think, I think we'd say something at that point. I have to follow up on that. But Adolf Hitler's not going to be sitting in the pew. So, um, But that's how we do it. We leave it to the conscience of those who are sitting in the pew after we've declared our powers, ministerial and declarative, right? So we declare this is what this meal is. And this is who is able to take it. Yeah. Laura? And deception can occur in both situations. Right. And as we said, it's a very serious thing. We don't want people to be deceived, you know. Jim? Would you explain the term paid over Oh, sure. That's uh, giving children to... I'm giving children. Giving the supper to infants... <laughs> No child sacrifice here. <laughs> Giving the supper to infants and children. Yeah. Pedo. <laughs> okay, I did want to go into this. This is a catechism question, but I think it's important. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. We've talked about this, and people were worried about that. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ though he be not yet assured thereof. 
And in God's account, which makes all the difference, he has it. If he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and depart from iniquity. So, assurance is not of the essence of faith. There are people who come in here who are not yet assured. They love Christ. They're relying upon Christ. They've seen their sin. They're turning to the Lord. But they're not assured. What's most important regarding worthy participation is not my assurance, but God's judgment. And he judges me in Christ as worthy. True Christians often struggle with doubts. We do. We struggle with doubts about our salvation. We fall into many sins, every single one of us. We fall into sins. That's true. This is why God brings us together to the table. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? There's a believer. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. Somehow the believer is walking in darkness right now. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Okay, you're having a hard time. Let's trust in the Lord. Jim? Isn't that more or less the irony of assurance that only the people who are worried about it are the ones who really strive to have it? <laughs> right? you're, not, you're not concerned about your assurance. You're thinking, hey, I've got nothing to lose coming into the summer. I'm good. Yeah, there's... That's a great signifier of the well, that's true. When you're worried about it, you haven't committed the sin unto death, as we talked the other night. There does come some points in life when you have great confidence. Sure. But there are other points in our lives when we don't have any confidence. In that case, that would also be informed confidence. Most of the time. Right? Yeah, right. It's God's work. Absolutely. Yeah. John writes these things to us who believe in the name of the Son of God, believers. Why? That we may know that we have eternal life. He's writing to Christians, and the reason he's doing so is so that they can have assurance. They don't have assurance yet. So it's possible to be a sincere, true Christian without assurance. That's what the question is dealing with. For various reasons, we might feel unprepared for the supper. We might feel unworthy to partake of the meal. God accepts us if in humility we realize our need, desire to be in Christ, and repent of all known sin. Very important. So the supper is for sinners. Believing sinners. The doubting Christian may be mistaken in the judgment that he passes upon himself. You can receive and rest upon Christ directly without sensing the comfort of assurance. Some weak, tender believers are so overly self-critical and greatly struggle with the flesh. That happens. Very tender conscience. Doubting Christians may lay hold of some of the precious promises revealed in scriptures. We can, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and cleanse us. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. No temptation has overtaken you. So there are promises in scripture that we can grab onto, even though we're not assured, God doesn't lie. Jesus will never lie to you, ever. Everything God said is true. So when you're doubting, if you're in darkness, you have no light, trust in the Lord and rely upon your God. His word is true. Any questions, final questions or comments? Nate?
being someone who perennially struggles with assurance, I've always thought of the Lord's Supper in conjunction with John 15, where he talks about on the vine and the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. I've always thought about that coming to the Lord's Supper and like looking at myself and like, ah, I don't know if I'm very much fruit right now. Uh, but recognizing that repentance in and of itself is a fruit. Amen. In which we turn to the Lord and pursue obedience. Uh, we pursue obedience out of the rec receiving of His forgiveness. And so just, yeah, I and mean, that's something that's always helped me. Yeah. You're exactly right. Repentance itself, and even go farther back, the desire itself, that is fruit. Trust in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That means he'll put the desires in your heart, and that desire is evidence that he is working in you. So come to the supper. Be further strengthened. That's important. Okay, well, that's the end of our talk on the supper. Uh, next week, we'll move on to chapter 30. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for providing us with everything that we need, most notably the Lord Jesus himself. And thank you that at this table of the Lord, we can commune with the risen Christ by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Please now prepare us for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.